Section 69 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter 18, Part 3, The Church and Reform, by R. V. Lawrence such were the forces at work in the church when at length circumstances allowed the long-deferred council to meet the christian renaissance with its ideal of the unity of faith and reason and its attempt to find a place within the church for all that was best in the achievements of the human mind its philosophy its science and its art was rapidly being eclipsed by a new spirit which claimed for church authority complete control and gave little scope to human freedom and self-realization. The sacrifice of the intellect, rather than its consecration, was demanded. Mankind was to remain in bondage to the dead hand of the past. The progress that was being rapidly made in human knowledge was to be ignored. Catholicism was never to go beyond its medieval exponents. Conciliation and compromise with the new views was consequently treason, and no surrender was the cry. Paul III stood aloof and looked on as the new power grew in strength and made itself felt in the church. The last of the Renaissance popes, he was liberal in his sympathies, but he never gave his whole confidence to any party. The reformed and tolerant Catholicism, which seemed about to prevail in the early years of his reign, found itself only partially supported, if not abandoned, and others were allowed to frustrate its efforts. Contarini, on his return to Italy after the colloquy of Ratisbon, was rewarded with the government of Bologna, but his influence was gone. His death occurred soon after, on August twenty-fourth, 1542, and he was spared the further disillusionment which the council would have inevitably brought to him. He was one of the noblest figures in an age of great men, and the blessing of the peacemaker was his. Ghiberti survived him little more than a year, dying on December thirtieth, fifteen forty three. The loss of Contarini and Ghiberti was an irreparable blow to the party of conciliation. Sadoletto, Pole, and Morone survived, but none of them had the force of character to fight a losing cause, and Pole and Morone ended their days in trying to vindicate their orthodoxy, the one by playing the part of a persecutor in England the other by winding up the council in the papal interest. For the time, however, Viterbo, of which Pole was governor, became the centre of the remnants of that little band which had first found a common bond in the oratory of divine love. Everything now depended on the coming council, and there was nothing but to await events. Though the colloquy of Radisbon had failed to achieve any permanent result, yet the emperor did not altogether despair of conciliation. The varying circumstances of the political situation from time to time affected his attitude towards the Lutherans, but he appeared to have had a genuine desire all along for a thorough reformation of abuses in the church by a general council, from which the Roman coin itself was not to be exempt. Paul III, on the other hand, had little desire for a council, at which it was clear, after the events at Ratisbon, that the papal prerogative was likely to be severely handled. It was impossible for him, however, to resist the demands of the emperor altogether, and, after an interview between them at Lucca, 
Paul III at length again agreed to summon a council. Accordingly, on May 22, 1542, a bull was published, summoning a general council to meet at Trent on November 1, 1542. Trent was selected as the place of assembly, with the hope of satisfying the German demand that the council should meet on German territory. Though the population of Trent was mainly Italian, it was within the empire and under the protection of Charles' brother Ferdinand. At the same time, it was easy of access to the Italian bishops, and was not so far distant as to be beyond the Pope's control. It was an ecclesiastical principality under its bishop, Cristofero Madruso, Cardinal of Trent. In August 1542, Parigio, Moroni, and Pole, the legates appointed to open the council, started for Trent, and the council was duly opened on November 1st. There were, however, only a few Italian prelates present, and, as no more arrived by a bull of July 6, 1543, the Pope again adjourned the council. The war between Charles and Francis I again made the council impossible, and at the Diet of Speer in 1544, it was agreed that all proceedings against the Lutherans should be stayed until a free and general council could be held in Germany. Charles also promised to hold a diet in which the religious questions should again be discussed and, if possible, arranged. The Lutherans were privately assured that an endeavor should be made to frame a scheme of comprehension, and that the Pope should not be allowed to stand in the way. The proceedings at Speer seriously alarmed the Pope, and on August 5, 1544, he addressed a strong letter of remonstrance to the Emperor. The sin of Eli would be his, he wrote, if he did not lift up his voice against the unwarranted interference in the affairs of religion by the emperor and the diet. Toleration was pernicious, and the attempt to regulate the affairs of the church in a national assembly, largely composed of laymen, unheard of. He was himself desirous of a reformation, and had declared this often, by promising a council, and it was the emperor himself who through the war was hindering the one means which could restore the peace of Christendom. The Pope now saw that it was necessary for him to take active steps if the control of the situation was not to pass out of his hands. Unless something was done, Charles might be driven to follow the example of Henry VIII, and the German Church might fall away from the Holy See. The Council must be held in order to satisfy Charles, but it must be conducted with quite other objects than those contemplated by him. The formulation of doctrine should be its chief business. The old, traditional doctrine of the Church must be laid down afresh, so as to make all conciliation of the Protestants impossible. All discussion of the papal prerogatives must be avoided, and the reform of practical abuses must take quite a secondary place. Having enunciated the Church's doctrine, the Council might leave to the Holy Father the carrying out of such reforms as were necessary. The Council, in fact, was to be used as an agent of the Counter-Reformation, and as another means to the defeat of Protestantism. All the resources of a skillful and patient diplomacy were now devoted to this end. A bull was published on September 17, 1544 summoning the council to meet on march fourteenth fifteen forty five and cardinal alessandro farnese was sent to germany to come if possible to an understanding with the emperor 
on september eighteenth fifteen forty four the treaty of crepe was signed and it was no longer so essential to charles to keep on good terms with the lutherans the emperor and the papacy soon began to draw nearer to one another charles refused to confirm the rights of the lutherans without regard to the proceedings of the council but at the same time he proceeded with the greatest caution he did not feel strong enough as yet to provoke a general contest with german protestantism the turkish danger was again imminent and the imperial treasury was empty it thus came about that when at length the papacy was willing to proceed actively with the council the emperor on the other hand wished to defer it for a time as it seemed likely to drive the lutherans to desperation charles accordingly at the diet of worms in fifteen forty five allowed the religious question to be again discussed and proposed another colloquy of the theologians until the diet was concluded he requested the pope to defer the opening of the council paul the third vigorously protested against what was nothing short of an insult to the council and the negotiations proceeded charles even went so far as to propose the transference of the council to a really german town from trent which was only german in name and the pope replied by threatening to translate it to rome or bologna charles then saw that further concession was necessary as he could not afford to risk the hostility of the whole of germany which this transfer would inevitably provoke in october fifteen forty five accordingly after the conclusion of the diet of worms he requested the pope to open the council as quickly as possible at trent and informed him that the religious negotiations at the diet were not seriously intended and that their only purpose was to deceive the protestants until his military preparations were ready and he should be able to crush them the negotiations that led up to the opening of the council thus ended in a triumph for the papacy and the protestants had little to expect from a council which began under such auspices their only hope lay in a conflict of interest between the emperor and the pope and these powers now appeared in close alliance their agreement was not however so close as it appeared and the papacy felt that only the first step had been gained charles even when in alliance with the pope never intended the council to content itself with a solemn publication of catholic dogmas to the world a reform of the church in head and members was necessary even if the wishes of the protestants were to be ignored charles never had any intention of merely playing the papal game the exigencies of the political situation would determine the extent of the concessions he would make to the papacy and paul the third felt that it was no easy task which still lay before him paul the third deemed it unwise to preside in person at the council an old man of nearly eighty the prospect of the journey and a lengthy sojourn at trent was alone sufficient to deter him from the idea besides which it was better for the papacy to avoid being directly involved in the struggle of parties which was inevitable at the council he accordingly appointed three legates to preside over its meetings and to conduct the business they were to keep in close communication with rome and no important matter was to be decided until he had been consulted his choice fell upon giovanni maria del monte marcello servini cardinal of santa croce and reginald pole del monte and Cervini were entirely devoted to the papal interest 
the former was hasty and impatient, a worldly cardinal of the unreformed papal court. Servini represented the party of Carafa and the new Catholicism, intolerant, narrow, and uncompromising, but keenly anxious for the removal of moral abuses in the Church. Servini, moreover, was a diplomatist of the First Order, and it was due to him that the numerous rocks and shoals on which the papacy stood in danger of being wrecked during the council were skilfully avoided. He prevented many a scene, which the haughtiness of Del Monte had provoked, from becoming serious, and none knew better how to pour oil on troubled waters. Paulet was little more than a cipher from the beginning. His academic mind was helpless amidst the play of living forces in which he found himself and he had to acquiesce in the policy of his colleagues who had the papacy behind them his nomination as legate was only intended to give the appearance of conciliation to the papal policy and he felt himself helpless from the first he spoke several times in favor of moderation but soon lost heart his health provided him with a convenient pretext to withdraw later from a scene in which he was doomed to be a failure Great as was his intellectual ability, he had none of the qualities of a leader, and he was unequal to playing the part that Contarini might have played in the council. On March 13, 1545, the legates made their solemn entry into Trent. They had the vaguest instructions and could do nothing but wait while the negotiations mentioned above went on between Charles and the Pope. At length, when a favorable juncture seemed to have arrived, the Pope ordered them to open the council on December 13, 1545, and bade a number of Italian bishops make their way to Trent. The attendance at the opening ceremony was but meager. Besides the legates and Cardinal Madruso, the Bishop of Trent, only four archbishops, twenty bishops, and five generals of orders, with a small number of theologians, were present. Of the bishops, five were Spanish and two French and Sweden, England, and Ireland were represented by one bishop each. Cardinal Madruso was the only prelate who in any sense could be said to represent the empire, and the rest were Italians. The first three sessions were spent in making the necessary arrangements for the business of the council. A division of opinion at once arose as to the exact title to be used. The proposal of the legates, Sacrosanta Tridentia Senatus in Spiritu Sancto, Legitime Congregata, in a Prosubitis Trebus Apostolicae Sedis Legatus, was not satisfactory to a portion of the council, and it was proposed to add the word Universitum Ecclesiam Representicus. The intention of the amendment was to express the superiority of the council even to the Pope and to revive the memories of constance and basil the legates expressed their dislike of it to the pope on these grounds though in public they resisted it merely as being unnecessary and they succeeded in obtaining the rejection of the proposal a question of more practical importance followed as to the right of voting at constance voting had been by nations and abbots and theologians as well as bishops and generals of orders were allowed to vote the bishops were, however, very jealous of their privileges, and it was decided to confine the power of voting to bishops and heads of religious orders. The claim of absent bishops to vote by proxy was rejected by the legates by order of the Pope. Only bishops in partibus might represent their diocesans. 
this was a great victory for the curial party in the absence of voting by nations it ensured a preponderant influence to the italian bishops who were mostly blind adherents to the papacy many of them were very poor and were in fact dependent upon the legates for their daily bread the papal pensions and the hope of being rewarded with lucrative offices kept them loyal to the curia the interest of which were largely their own it was from the spanish bishops on the other hand that the legates had most to fear charles had issued peremptory orders for them to attend the council and they became the backbone of the opposition to the pretensions of the curia the work of Ximenes had borne good fruit and the spanish bishops were the most learned and the ablest among the members of the council their orthodoxy was unimpeachable they had no sympathy with the wishes of the moderate party for conciliation and doctrine but equally with them they were determined to maintain the supremacy of the council to the pope and to remove the abuses of the papal court so alarmed were the legates by their arrival and by the prospects of an increase in their number that they wrote to the pope urgently requesting that ten or twelve capable italian bishops of proved fidelity might be sent to the council to resist them the divergence between the interests of the curia with its italian supporters and the foreign fathers was plainly revealed when the order of business came to be determined in his instructions to the legates paul the third clearly laid down that reform was only a secondary and less important cause of the convocation of the council its principal work was to be the definition of dogma it was for this latter purpose that paul the third had consented to summon the council by proclaiming anew the old dogma's reconciliation with the protestants would be rendered impossible and before any reforms hostile to the papal interests could be undertaken it would probably be possible to bring the council to an end the emperor and the spanish bishops together with the few moderate and independent men among the italians had however no intention of meekly submitting to the indefinite postponement and the consideration of reform when the church had been purified then the time would come for the discussion of questions of doctrine led by cardinal Bedruzzo, who represented the imperial views they insisted on reform being taken in hand at once the legates were placed in a very difficult position and were afraid of risking an open defeat feeling ran so high in the council that an open revolt was likely if they insisted on beginning with the discussion of doctrine alone they accordingly at the suggestion of thomas Campeggio, the bishop of feltre proposed a compromise that doctrine and reform should be treated at the same time by the separate commissions and should come before the council in alternation and for this proposal in spite of the opposition of cardinal madruzzo they obtained a majority on january twenty second fifteen forty six the compromise was a partial defeat to the curial party and revealed the strength of the opposition the pope was furious and called upon the legates to get the decision rescinded the legates however pointed out that this was impossible and the pope accordingly acquiesced with bad grace he however prohibited the discussion of any plan for the reform of the roman coi until it had been first referred to him as a consolation the legates reminded the pope that they could always lengthen the discussion on the dogmas so as to receive his opinion on the questions of reform 
that were under consideration at the same time. The details of the procedure of the council were arranged with less difficulty. The whole synod was divided into three classes, and the work of preparation was distributed between them. A preliminary discussion of each question, after it had been prepared by the theologians and canonists, was to take place in the special congregation to which it was allotted. This matter was then to be further discussed in a general congregation of the whole synod, and, if approved, it was to be promulgated in a solemn session of the council. The rules of procedure being thus settled, the dogmatic discussions were opened at the fourth session, which began on April 8, 1546. The rule of faith was first considered. The Nicene Creed, including the Filioque, had been reaffirmed in the third session, with the significant description, Symbolum Jidae Que Sancta Romana Ecclesia Uditor. The sources of knowledge of religious truth were now examined, and scripture and tradition were set side by side as having equal authority. Tradition was defined as Traditio Christi and Traditio Apostolorum, Spiritu Santo Dictamate. The Church alone had the right to expound scripture, but silence was maintained as to the relations of the Pope and the Church in the matter. The traditional canon of scripture was accepted, and the Vulgate was declared the authoritative text, which no one was to presume to reject. It was not to be expected that these definitions would be accepted without opposition. Nacchianti, Bishop of Chioggia, maintained that Scripture was the sole rule of faith, but he found only six supporters. Others proposed to distinguish between apostolic traditions and tradition in general, but they also met with defeat. The declaration that the text of Vulgate was infallible was out of harmony with the knowledge of the time and met with criticism in the papal household itself. The enthusiasm of the theologians at Trent, mostly Dominicans, for medieval th theology was almost too zealous to please the Roman court. The Pope could not help feeling a certain displeasure at the council coming to a decision on such fundamental points without consulting the Holy See. He directed the legates to have the decrees of the fourth session examined anew, but on their protesting he gave away and abandoned the idea of dictating directly to the council, on condition that its decrees should always be submitted for his approbation before being published. In accordance with the order of business agreed upon, reform was next taken in hand, and a discussion began upon a difficult point of discipline, the question as to the rules for preaching and catechizing. This raised the contentious question of the relation of the bishops to the regular clergy. Stormy scenes took place, and reverend prelates gave one another the lie. The bishops of Fisoli and Chioga were the most offensive to the legates, on account of their plain speaking, and their recall from the council was requested of the Pope. A considerable number of bishops demanded that there should be no exemptions from episcopal control. The discussion soon passed to wider issues. It was claimed that the residence of bishops in their diocese was jure dimno, and that the Pope therefore possessed no power of dispensing with it. The legates, however, succeeded in keeping to the question immediately before them, and it was finally decided that, while the regulars were to be allowed to preach in the churches of their own order without episcopal permission, 
they were to be prohibited from doing so in other churches without the license of the ordinary original sin was the next subject of discussion and this led on to the thorny paths of free will and justification the emperor endeavored to defer the discussion on these speculative points but the pope was determined to obtain definitions which would make the breach with the protestants irreparable the legates again june fifteen forty six requested that more italian bishops might be sent to the council to cope with the opposition and the consideration of the nature of justification was entered upon a neapolitan thomas de st felicio bishop of lacava and a few theologians maintained the doctrine of justification by faith alone but their views could attain no hearing and a scene ensued in which san felicio and a greek bishop fell upon one another and the latter's beard was torn out in handfuls the discussion then confined itself to the mediating view which contarini had advocated in his tractatus de justification piges flug and groper had maintained a similar position in germany and it had the adherence of some of the ablest catholic intellects both north and south of the alps Serapondo, the general of the augustinians was the chief champion in the council of this view Serapondo, in many respects resembled sadoletto the best elements of humanism and christianity were united in him and the position he took up on this doctrine was in harmony with the traditions of the augustinian order he distinguished between an inherent and an imputed righteousness and the inherent only justified because of the imputed the one was needed to complete the other in the imputed righteousness of christ alone however lay our final hope the inherent righteousness the righteousness of works was by itself of no avail it was in this discussion that lanaise and salmeron the two jesuits who had been brought to the council by servini as the pope's theologians first played a prominent part in the debates of the assembly ignatius was of opinion that the council was not of very high importance but he wished his society to receive favorable notice there Lanais and Salmeron had received very careful instructions as to their behavior in the council. They were to use every opportunity for preaching and carrying on pastoral work. Dogmatics, however, were to be avoided in the pulpit, and no excessive asceticism that might be repellent was to be practiced. The spiritual exercises were to be introduced whenever an occasion offered itself. In the meetings of the council they were to speak with moderation and avoid giving offense but they were to oppose anything approaching to the new views every night they were to meet and discuss their joint plans of action with leger the politic instructions of ignatius which lanaise and salmeron faithfully earned out were eminently successful the jesuits were exempted from the general prohibition of preaching during the council and soon obtained considerable influence with the spanish bishops they came to be known as the great advocates of purity of dogma and scholasticism in the council and their importance rapidly increased when ignatius wished to recall lanaise servini wrote to say that he was indispensable with regard to the conflicting claims of the papacy and the bishops ignatius wished the jesuits to play the role of mediator but this position was soon abandoned and they became the scientific supporters of the roman claims their skill in patristic and scholastic quotation was remarkable and they read to the council what were whole treatises rather than speeches 
Linnaeus especially devoted himself to the great question of justification. While admitting the distinction between inherent and imputed righteousness, he maintained that the imputed righteousness became involved in the inherent. The merits of Christ were imparted to man through faith, and we must rely on the merits of Christ not because they complete, but because they produce our own. The efficacy of works was thus implied. Sierra Pondo had maintained that we must rely on the imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ was alone true and sufficient, and it was our faith in that which ultimately justified us. Such a view made reconciliation with the Protestants not impossible, while that of Linnaeus brought all hopes of agreement to an end. In his speech against Serapondo, Linnaeus pointed out with great skill the weakness of mediating theology, and the superficial clearness of his logic appealed to the assembled fathers. The moderate party, though amiable to persuade the council of their views, were yet able to obtain a decree on the subject sufficiently ambiguous to allow the possibility of the development of Jansenism in the future. The formula, however, made reconciliation with the Protestants impossible, and the papacy and the Jesuits thus obtained their object. Pollet exhorted the council not to reject any opinion simply because it was held by Luther, but his voice had little weight. Sirapondo was left to read the moderates, and Pollet left the council at the end of June, his health breaking down, and retired to Padua. In August, the Pope requested him to return to Trent, but he excused himself. In October, he was definitely relieved of his functions. Meanwhile, the decrees of the fifth session were solemnly published on June 17, 1546, and Paul III approved and ratified by a brief the decrees with regard to preaching. Only the Bishop of Fisole protested against this indirect claim of the Pope that the decrees of the Council required his assent and confirmation. Though the legates had successfully steered their way through the discussions on the most fundamental points of doctrine, they still feared the determination of the emperor and the Spanish bishops to carry out a thorough reform. To prevent this, they endeavored to procure the translation of the council to an Italian town where it would be more completely under their control. Madruzzo, who was the energetic advocate of the emperor's ideas on the subject of reform, had several acrimonious conflicts with the irritable Del Monte and the situation again became strained. Cardinal Pacheco went so far as to accuse the legates of falsifying the votes. The charge was groundless, but it is an indication how high feeling ran. The emperor peremptorily refused to consent to the translation of the council, and the legates had to content themselves with the endeavoring to obtain the solemn publication of the degrees on justification. A further rampart against the Protestants in the form of doctrinal decrees upon the sacraments was also prepared, and, while the emperor endeavored to prevent further definition of doctrine, the legates did all they could to hasten it on. Fearing to press the emperor too far, Servini, diplomatic as ever, proposed a compromise. The publication of the decrees on justification was to be delayed if the emperor would consent to the suspension of the council for six months and to all disciplinary reform being left to the Pope. The Emperor, however, rejected the proposal at once, and the legates then, on December 29, 1546, persuaded the Council to agree to the publication of the decrees on justification at the sixth session on January 13, 1547. 
this was accordingly done and the decrees were confirmed by the pope who as a concession to the council in return for the adjournment of the question of the residence of bishops proceeded to publish a bull requiring cardinals holding bishoprics in plurality to resign them within a certain date so far as it was carried out the bull was little more than a dead letter as they reserved to themselves many pensions and charges upon the revenues of the sees which they resigned rapid progress was made meanwhile with the decrees on the sacraments while that on the residence of bishops was again delayed the view that residence was jure divino and therefore not dispensable by the pope was again insisted on by the spanish bishops and carranza wrote a special treatise on the subject but the servile italian majority was continually increasing and when the independent bishop of fisole maintained that the episcopate possessed all spiritual powers in itself and that bishops were not simply the delegates of the pope the manuscript of a speech was demanded in order that he might be proceeded against for derogating from the authority of the holy see this was however too much for the council and such a storm ensued that his manuscript was returned to him the legates however succeeded in avoiding any mention of the cardinals in the decree on residence and no reference was made to the question whether it was jure divino or not residence was simply declared necessary and power was given to bishops to visit all the churches of their diocese including the cathedral chapter the whole decree was however limited by the prescription that it was not to diminish in any way the authority of the holy see in this form it was solemnly published at the seventh session on march fifth fifteen forty seven together with decrees on the sacraments in general and on baptism and confirmation End of section 69